0: Votes are in, the candidates for the November election are set, but what else did the results of the Massachusetts primary tell us? That's our topic on this week's episode of the podcast. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and here to help us break it all down are Samantha Gross, a State House reporter at the Boston Globe, and Liam Kerr of the center left policy group Priorities for Progress. Samantha, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And same to you, Liam. Glad to be here. Uh, So just start us off, uh, Samantha, with with uh, uh, a sort of a a picture of what we what we learned sort of in the in the grander scheme of things from from Tuesday's primary. What did you what were your sort of big takeaways from that?
1: So but despite not having a competitive Democratic gubernatorial primary, there was a lot of excitement about the other statewide races um, and other legislative races down the ballot. One thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, how potentially uh, history-making these races will be. You know, Maura Healy um, could soon become the first lesbian governor uh, in the United States, the first elected woman governor in this in Massachusetts. Um, her endorsed successor, Andrea Campbell, was victorious in her primary, um, and she was the first Black woman to ever win a Democratic nomination for statewide office, which is a big deal. Um, you know, Kim Driscoll emerged victorious from her primary for a lieutenant governor in a three-way primary. Um, That matchup of of Kim Driscoll and Moore Healy on a ticket could be the first governor, lieutenant governor, um, both women elected in the country, which is, you know, a big stat. So I think, you know, my big picture takeaway was that while there wasn't a competitive Democratic, you know, primary for governor, people still kind of Got excited, and there's still history made, and there was uh, obviously some really competitive races, um, you know, across the ballot.
0: Yeah, and the the point about you know the sort of women uh, who won in so many of these races, I don't know, it's just sort of some weird Massachusetts phenomenon, right, where we were kind of seen as this kind of retrograde state, despite the kind of blue liberalish reputation we had been a place, you know, pretty hostile to women. Uh, winning statewide offices. I mean, we only recently elected the first uh, woman to the U.S. Senate. Uh, As you said, we've never elected a woman governor. Uh, You know, our congressional delegation has been really slow in that regard, too. And then suddenly we have one election, and it's just like sort of the floodgates open or something. I I don't know, you know, what what to make of that. We, We finally decided, you know, to sort of wake up and smell the coffee, and then, you know, we kind of did it in a big way or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also good to note that not only did women um, emerge victorious from a lot of their primaries, but there were a lot of races where women were facing other women on the ballot, which says something about, you know, giving voters a choice and kind of breaking, you know, this is what the Barbara Lee Family Foundation describes as an imagination gap. Um, being able to allow voters to imagine a woman in executive office or imagine a woman in other statewide offices, um, instead of closing your eyes and imagining a man in one of those positions. So I think it was really important for representation on the ballot um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, the large crop of women who ran this year, um, I think, is something to note.
0: And Liam, what what were your sort of big takeaways?
2: Yeah, um, when it comes to history making, and also who made the history, Uh, when we look back a decade from now, I think that's what we'll remember in Massachusetts. And also maybe what people around the country think about. Massachusetts is synonymous with the Democratic Party. We often are at the forefront of showing who a Democrat is to the rest of the country. Um, And you have not just uh, women beating men or dynamic women leading, you have truly exceptional candidates who either burst onto the scene in a first election or really came from behind in a big way. Um, so Maura Healy, you know, career civil servant, lawyer, you know, when she wins in 2014, I mean, that is a shocking, just, you know, there is a lot of talent, a lot of dynamism, and a lot of leadership that she showed in bursting onto the scene in 2014. She's a special talent. Um, Kim Driscoll similarly starts this election in December, January, no statewide name ID, no money. Um, crushes the convention six months later, attracts, you know, over hundred, I think, elected official endorsements, really a special talent, special candidate. And then obviously Andrea um, Campbell, someone who, uh, you know, beats an incumbent only the second or third time in the Boston City Council ever um, after not being directly involved in politics beforehand. Um, you know, single digits in the mayor's race barely doesn't make it to the finals. Um, it seems like she likely would have won the final if she was in it. Um, and then, you know, just pulling away at the at the end in this race. So really um, big national implications and big long term implications, not just in these women, but who these women are and who they could show uh, for a future of the Democratic Party. Um, and I think the other two big picture takeaways, um, you know, one, you know, back to reality moment. Um, a lot of the far left living in a fantasy land and some of the national narrative and even local narrative moving along with that, um, when it just wasn't reflected in what voters wanted and wasn't reflected in the elections outside of JP and a couple other places. Um, But that bubble burst and that fantasy land was exposed, um, and it seems like there's real consensus there, not just in the election results, but what it means for moving forward. Similarly on the on the far right. they also uh, live in a more dangerous, but also in a, in a fantasy land of what voters want. Uh, and I think some moderate Republicans live in their own fantasy land thinking, well, Doty will pull this out and, you know, maybe there will be a real governor's race. And that was exposed as well. And so, you know, something that we've been talking about for a while, there's two big myths in Massachusetts politics. One is that Democratic primary voters want the far left. And the other is that there is a Republican Party and, you know. Tuesday night's results showed very clearly there is no competitive Republican Party in Massachusetts, uh, and also voters want mainstream Democrats, and those Democratic leaders know that and uh, should have an easy time in November.
0: And if we just sort of uh, suspend your 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 take for a moment and and just say there is a Republican Party of some of some shape or sort still in existence, I think I guess your point is that there's kind of this. I don't know, maybe asymmetry, you'd say. I mean, we have this idea that in primaries, you know, parties kind of, you know, veer toward toward the poll. And so to the left in Democratic primaries, to the right in Republican primaries. And the, I guess that what I mean by the asymmetry is that that certainly was borne out in the Republican primary, like any of the kind of last minute efforts to try to say to people, wait a minute before you kind of nominate this kind of full-on Trumpist. Uh, those fell flat in the end. Uh, uh, as you're saying, the Democratic uh, primary uh, electorate is just really not this kind of, you know, sort of super progressive left, left group. I wonder if part of that is also, you know, every state has its own structure or rules. So we have kind of what they call kind of, I think, semi-open primaries. So you, can, you can't vote in any primary. But if you're not registered under either party label, which actually a majority of, of Massachusetts voters now are, you can vote in either primary Most, you know, a lot of those people vote in the Democratic primary. It's kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We've sort of come to see that that's often where kind of races get decided. So I think voters want to they want to play ball where there's action. So, I mean, that that is also, I think, probably a factor, right, in kind of pulling the Democratic primaries a little bit more toward the center. Wouldn't wouldn't you guys say?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, 60% of registered voters now don't subscribe to any party, Um, and I think that, you know, you see that play out on the campaign trail, you see it play out in the rhetoric that the candidates use, Um, or at least, you know, the candidates that were successful on Tuesday night, um, they were able to, you know, play closer to the middle, and kind of try to bring this independent brand of bipartisanship um, that Massachusetts voters go toward um, historically.
0: And um, so there was a lot of interest in, in the race, I'd say. And, and I think the turnout numbers show, uh, you know, something over a million voters turned out. Um, I'm not sure where it ranks. I know there was talk that we were going to be approaching sort of a, you know, 20 or 30 year high, for a primary uh, turnout, but I want to sort of ask you, Liam, just to sort of kick off a little conversation about uh, the strange context for that, which you and some uh, some other folks wrote a really interesting piece for us in Commonwealth about before the primary. You co-authored a piece with Danielle Allen, a Harvard professor, who was herself briefly a candidate in the Democratic uh, race for governor and uh john griffin uh, a fellow activist uh, with you in your efforts and 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 you talked about the fact that uh despite this interest and what was going to be sort of a fairly high turnout that voters knew like very little about these candidates um and uh i mean there were some astounding figures from a poll that uh that that you all commissioned uh our colleagues here at the Massing polling group to do just a couple of weeks before the election uh, uh, in, in mid-August. Half the voters, likely Democratic primary voters, had never heard of the candidate who was ultimately nominated for LG, the same for Attorney General. Meanwhile, three-quarters of them had never heard of Diana DiZaglio, who a couple of weeks later became the nominee for uh, for state auditor. I mean, only Bill Galvin was in positive territory, I think, with 70 with percent of voters knowing who he was. Uh, you kind of wonder where the other 30 percent have been for what the three hundred years or so that he's been in office, but but um, but just talk a little bit about that dynamic and and you know and sort of the the dangers that you all see in that.
2: Yeah, and this is related to the last point, which is that this is the general election. The Democratic primary is the general election. It's the day after Labor Day, so intentionally the probably most difficult day um, uh, to vote. And to pay attention, to be clued in, and to be in a routine as a voter, um, and it's not treated as a general election by civil society, uh, the media. Uh, you know, it's treated as an important election, but it's not treated as the election, which in fact it is. Uh, and from the voter perspective, um, we started asking early in the cycle: "Are you excited to vote?" Um, What's your awareness level of the candidates? Asking about certain issues, changes that people want to see in state government, and as you mentioned in that that uh, piece, Danielle, who's a um, leading national democracy reformer, and as a candidate was was leading on that uh, uh, on that issue of having a more informed and engaged electorate. Um, we still see high enthusiasm, and while participation did not get to the level that. Uh, the Secretary of State forecast or that we had forecast earlier in the cycle and that we thought we would see based on that enthusiasm and based on the record breaking turnout uh, in 2020 in a non presidential democratic primary. um, There were still a lot of voters participating and they, you know, voters usually don't like to say they don't know anything. And we asked, do you have enough decision to make a choice. And two thirds or more of voters in statewide races said they did not have the information to make a choice. And in the June polling and earlier polling, you know, we could infer that by looking at favorable and unfavorable. And Massing um, polling group uh, folks actually running the numbers say, let's look at the inverse. Let's look at the white space. Let's take away all the favorable, unfavorable, heard of but don't know, and say who hasn't heard anything about these candidates? And focusing in on that number, and that is a flashing red light for democracy in our state. Um, Democratic primary turnout was you know in the 750,000 range. It did exceed 2018. And it blew 2014, the last time there was an open race for governor, blew 2014 out of the water, which was less than 500,000 in the Democratic primary. So more than 50% higher than 2014. Um, But those voters went in just not knowing who to vote for. And we see, um, you know, at least one race will have more than 15% blanks. Uh, It it looks like that's a data point from 2018, the lieutenant governor race in the Democratic primary had more than 25% blanks. Um, But this is a crisis. Uh, and obviously we have a national crisis of protecting our democracy, um, but we have a crisis in Massachusetts of actually practicing our democracy the way that it should.
0: And you guys wrote uh, in, in your piece for Commonwealth that voters need uh, more and better information. Um, I, I feel like that's sort of putting uh, putting Samantha and me a little bit on the spot. That's sort of our, our, our world. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Does it have to do with the amount of coverage going on and the sort of the sort of journalism, the state of journalism in the state?
2: Yeah, I actually think it has um, nothing to do with you and Samantha and your colleagues in the media, and it has everything to do with the business side and the civic side. Um, you know, I get a newspaper, actually get two delivered to my house every week for free, hard copies of newspapers delivered to my house every week. Um, and then some of the smartest people in the entire world are sitting in Silicon Valley trying to get me addicted to. Instagram and, and I see so many TikTok ads, which I still haven't downloaded, but there's a lot of effort to get your attention on, on important, or no, sorry, not important, on lucrative, uh, on lucrative uh, things when you're, when you're glued to your phone. Um, there's a lot of very high quality journalism still produced. I think people, um, when they think about the shrinking of the the media, um don't distinguish between the production of high quality journalism and the dissemination and consumption of high quality journalism. And that is a gap that can be closed by civil society, could potentially be closed by government. Um, And so we ran a a, a, a test in this election um, to actually send Boston Globe articles or endorsement pieces um, to voters and not all voters, but only a subset of voters, to see if that would reduce the number of blanks um, and then in uh, uh, potentially post-election surveys change how people uh, view candidates. Um, and you just don't have people receiving the information. And so there's this big gap between the high quality journalism, um, and no offense to the Hometown Weekly that goes on my doorstep uh, for free every week, um, but I think if people are reading Samantha's articles about what Maura Haley, you know, said about continuing Charlie Baker's legacy, they may think differently of Maura Healey. Um, but fewer and fewer people are actually reading those every day. And,
0: and Samantha, what, what were you hearing out there as you were covering these races? Um, did you, did you sort of pick up on this voter, sort of the, this kind of weird dichotomy of a lot of voter interest, but also... Voter uncertainty or confusion about about how they were going to vote uh, in the in the primary.
1: Certainly, um, it's something that I think kind of started even with the caucuses. Um, some of the most engaged voters who attend their local you know party caucuses um, were also kind of meeting these people for the first time. There were a lot of candidates that started with, you know, very little name recognition, kind of like Liam said, there are people like, you know, Kim Driscoll, who, who did it well, and were able to kind of like burst onto the scene and, and become a name that people did know. But, you know, at the beginning, there were a lot of people that just um, had no name recognition, or were, you know, a legislative, you know, a legislature that only had name recognition kind of in their district. And so I think there was, um, you know, definitely some gaps in people's kind of understanding of who these people were, what their records were. Um, But, you know, the name recognition on its own, I think, helped people who who were able to have that kind of statewide name. People like, you know, even Andrea Campbell, who ran in a a mayoral election in Boston, that really was a statewide media race, um, were able to do better. But I think, you know, there were people who didn't know who to vote for. And Even, you know, going into the polls um, early voting, I was out talking to people and there were there were folks kind of on their phones deciding. Um, I talked to one woman who left every single race blank except for her local um, her local leaders in um, Quincy. She did not vote for any statewide because she just didn't know. Um, so I think that there is, you know, some work to be done in just civic education about not only who these people are, but what they do um, in some of these races, particularly, you know, positions like the lieutenant governor or the auditor, where voters just don't really understand, you know, practically what what their role is, um, which I think is an important role for the media to play in educating people about that, asking these questions in these debates, um, what would you actually do in this job, not just, you know, what is your platform, those types of things, I think, could help Voters get a better understanding and go into the polls more informed.
0: And speaking of the auditor's race, uh, which it's sort of funny that we are speaking of the auditor's race, uh, but but uh, yesterday, former Governor Jane Swift made an appearance where she, you know, endorsed Anthony Amore, the Republican nominee. Charlie Baker has already, you know, said he's all in with Anthony Amore, and in fact has said that's the only. Uh, Republican candidate that he plans to endorse in this race. Um, I mean, it really, to Liam's point about the state of the party, it feels like this is the last gasp effort here, right? When you've got the sitting two-term governor, you know, one of the most popular governors in the country and former governor uh, only deciding that they can feel comfortable weighing in on behalf of one of their party's nominees for an office that, you know, frankly, most people could not you know, if you ask most people to list the statewide offices, I'm guessing auditor would be left off a lot of lists, and even those who could name it probably would have a hard time telling you what its function is. But that's where they're 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 sort of you know that's the last hope they have, and uh, I don't know what that says nothing nothing probably good about the party's fortunes going forward.
2: Baker may say he's all in with Anthony Morey, and maybe he will be, but the actions of the Morey campaign and The Massachusetts Republican establishment, you know, show otherwise. Amore ended August or Amore entered September with less than $23,000 in his bank account. He can't run for state rep on that. He couldn't even buy the pickup truck Scott Brown drove around in for that, right? We'll see. I mean, the guy's most famous for not finding paintings. If this is their top candidate, going to be another you know only baker has won a statewide race now in 20 years statewide or federal race this is over 100 races uh and if they're putting their eggs in 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 that basket it's going to be another long while but it could allow at least some organizing to continue at least have someone in the news someone respectable and so maybe it does perpetuate that myth in a way uh but it's still a myth
1: Yeah, I would say that, you know, the Amore campaign has made an effort to kind of um, carry on this tradition in in certain ways. I don't think, you know, his fundraising numbers show that that has been super successful necessarily. But, you know, his campaign chair is is Beth Lindstrom, um, who managed Scott Brown's. Senate campaign served in the Mitt Romney administration. Like he has the types of people around him that other Republicans in the state don't at this at this stage in the party. Um, And even at the the Republican convention um, in Springfield in the spring, you know, Anthony Moore was in and out. He gave his speech and he left. Um, He doesn't fit in with the rest of the way, you know, the current party structure, um, the people who are kind of advising him worked for Charlie Baker. um, You know, Governor Baker was out collecting signatures for him early on when he was trying to make the ballot. Um, So I think that there is kind of an effort among the Baker types um, to support him in the ways that they can. But Liam, as you said, um, you know, it hasn't been super successful in the fundraising numbers. Um, we'll kind of see how that looks in the general. Um, he didn't have a primary opponent, so it's kind of hard to see what type of campaign he'll be running um, because he didn't have to, he did not have to run against an opponent uh, in September.
0: Just to wrap things up here, I, I want to ask you both to look ahead a little bit to the uh, November election and, and the governor's race. Um, and I guess the question I have is, uh, is, is Maura Healy looking to be the next Charlie Baker? Uh, I mean, she, she name-checked Charlie Baker twice in her very brief victory speech uh, on Tuesday night. And meanwhile, uh, you know, Jeff Deal doesn't really seem to want to have much of anything to do with Charlie Baker. Uh, so I'm not sure where, where it leaves him if she is making this very pretty explicit appeal to uh, Charlie Baker voters. Um, how, how do you guys see... Uh, see things playing out. And the other thing that's sort of fascinating, it's like neither she nor Deal seem to have really done this kind of shift toward the general that we kind of talk about in conventional political thinking. I mean, Maura Healy announced her run for governor with a nod toward, uh, what did she say, sort of fixing what's broken, but keep doing what's working well, which was, again, kind of an acknowledgement of of Baker's uh, leadership. Uh, And Deal has been kind of, you know, red meat, you know, Trumpist, from the start. And I know he doesn't seem to be showing too much uh, uh, indication that he's kind of doing this kind of move toward the center.
1: Um, I think that, you know, Maura Healy kind of coming out of the primary is trying to um, pitch herself to voters as this pragmatic person who kind of harkens some of the the ideas of of Charlie Baker, you know, she talks about cutting taxes, she's talked about tackling housing, which is something that, you know, Baker has talked about since, you know, he was first elected. Um, her promise is to expand vocational training, which has been a thing that the Baker administration has pushed. Um, and, you know, on Wednesday, the day after the election, she showed up in the literal center of the state in Worcester with Kim Driscoll, uh, pitching themselves to, you know, kind of small business leaders and talking about being this team that can actually get stuff done and having this very um, just pragmatic approach. So I do think that, you know, she's pitching herself in that way. I don't think she's necessarily shifting very far from what her primary looked like, but I think that's more of a, a symptom of the fact that she didn't have a primary opponent, you know, at the end. So she didn't have to um, run to the left of maybe where she where she would be running in a general election. But I do think that she is kind of centering, you know, she's, um, she's regarded as a progressive, as a progressive Democrat, but she, you know, like you said, in her speech, kind of announcing her run, she talked about keeping the stuff that's still working. Um, there hasn't been an elected Democrat governor um, in decades. So I think, you know, there's, I, I think she's walking in the middle a bit, but, um, you know, I don't think she would call herself a moderate either.
2: Yeah, Maura Healy said she wants to continue what's working and fix what's not. And it's clear she politically views what Charlie Baker did as working and got to run that general election the entire time. And what's not working is the intra-party dynamics in the Democratic Party and forceful leadership within this zero party state and would expect her to continue running in that big pragmatic middle and governing that way, but also saying the Democratic Party is not working and there is no clear factional structure in the state to mediate the direction of the party. And Maury is now the leader of the Democratic Party for only the second time in, you know, 30 years, there is a Democratic governor. She's the leader of the state. And
0: well, you would, there will be a Democratic governor,
2: you're saying. <laughs> there will be a Democratic governor. She's the leader. Sorry. She's the leader of politics in, in Massachusetts. And she could have coasted. She could have done what almost every other Democratic leader, whether in the state legislature or federally or nominally has done in recent time. Instead, she said, I'm going to remake state politics in the image that I want and that voters want, which is progressive without being offensive. And she delivered that in Andrea Campbell, and that was delivered in Kim Driscoll. And it will be interesting to see if the other side of that fight, which has been more organized and louder, seeks to push back. But I think the most important quote of the election was Cambridge State Rep Mike Connolly saying, voters have told us they want Charlie Baker's moderation. So he was complaining about who had won, but stated there is a realization now people know what voters want. And Maura Healy is remaking the party in that image, and that will have upstream national effects when people see Maura Healy, Kim Driscoll, and Andrea Campbell as who the Democratic Party is, instead of the Elizabeth Warren and other candidates that were rejected in the 2020 presidential primary.
0: Well, thanks so much, uh, Liam and Samantha, for a great conversation. I want to thank you both uh, for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: And thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast. We will see you next week.